Okay, one announcement before we get started. Is that on? Okay, one announcement before we get started. There will be a memorial service tomorrow for Mike Stubbs, the son of Barbara Warner. And this will be at 10 a.m. at the Union Cemetery near Moosup. You all try to figure out where that is. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. While we're bowing our heads for silent prayer, I want to know if I'm being heard over the speakers. There is no sound down here. So while we are going to uh, confess in, utilize 1 John 1, 9. Good. The sound system will repent. (laughs) Now we're ready to go. Let's uh, bow our heads together for a few moments of silent prayer. Make sure we're in fellowship, filled with the Spirit, ready to study the Word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this evening for this opportunity to come together and study your Word. We thank you for the fact that the Holy Spirit has revealed all of these things to us. They're all profitable for our spiritual life. They're all important for us to understand who you are and your working in human history. Father, as we study these things, we pray that you would give us a broader appreciation for the uh, truthfulness of your word, that we may have a greater appreciation for the outworking of your plan in human history, that we may be encouraged and strengthened in our faith. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Before we get started in our study in Genesis, I want to read to you a missionary letter that came yesterday from Oksana. We've been praying for Oksana and Lena, a couple of young ladies from Jim Myers Church in Kiev. Now, this is the outworking of missions. As Jim went over there, I think, seven years ago and started to work, started planting a church and and training uh, young people, these two young ladies who were very uh, <clears throat> important to his ministry in terms of uh, staff. Oksana was his secretary, and so he, we need to pray that he gets a, set, a new secretary. And she was quite talented, very, um, very capable in English and also in computers and a lot of other things. And anyway, these two young ladies uh, decided that uh, the Lord was leading them to Egypt as missionaries. So last November, Lena moved down to in Cairo, and then Oksana is now there, and they sent this out. Dear friends, we're sorry for communicating our news so rarely to you. We cannot write openly about the things that we do here. In order for us to send you a news report, we have to use an occasion when someone is going either to the U.S. or Ukraine. Uh, We love you all and would like to hear from each of you. Please stay in touch. In our emails to you, we are not allowed to you to say certain words like ministry, Christian service, missions, etc. So we have a request. When you write, please don't ask us about our evangelism and missions because that may create problems for us. 
To such things we refer as school and work. Lena has been in Cairo for four months already, and I've been here for just a month. I think Oksana went over the 1st of April. So this is a month old. Every morning we go to school to study Arabic language. We made some friends there. One of them is a girl from Ukraine who married an Egyptian Muslim several years ago and accepted Islam. Another is Lena's teacher of Arabic who would like to know more English and wants to be able to speak it well. In general, the situation with women is quite pathetic here. A lot of them don't work. Girls do get educated, and as strange as it may seem, many have degrees in law, but they can't find jobs. Or if they find jobs, no one really listens to them in court. It's a male-dominated society. Most women just stay at home, cook, look after children if they have any, and for entertainment go to the malls or movies or visit with their friends and relatives. So a big part of our ministry is finding some time to spend with them. We have invited several over to our home. Lena's teacher came several times. We don't lead discussions with them. We just hope right now to make to become good friends with them. They know we are Christians, Masihi as they call it. Two times a week I teach English at the Sunrise Center, which was organized by one American couple who has been here for six years. It's a center for teaching computer skills and English. I have five students, all very nice young ladies and all very smart. They already know some English, but they have difficulty speaking, so I help them. There is a computer program that I'm using, but I also make them talk to me. One girl invited me over to her house, and I met her family. I found out that her father is from a Bedouin family, Each member of the family loves riding horses, so I might have to overcome my fear of horses and go riding with them sometime. You never know what you might end up doing on the mission field. Lena and I also go to a Christian orphanage. Christians organized it for children from Christian families. Here in Egypt, people are not allowed to adopt. So if anything happens to parents or even one parent, sometimes they divorce or sometimes one dies and the other remarries and the kids are not wanted in the new home, Sometimes parents have several kids but are not able to take care of them. The children have nowhere to go. Anyway, this orphanage is for boys, 50 total. I'm tutoring them in English individually. The knowledge of English and computers is what will allow them to continue their studies and later get good jobs. I really should have studied to be a teacher. We are preparing a summer program for these kids so they can learn English at the Sunrise Center But we hope to have some other activities like teaching them how to cook, as I I understand they would really love to learn that too. We hope and pray that these kids will grow up to be strong Christians and be well-educated. Many have good chances of going on to the university after they finish school. We're so grateful to our Heavenly Father for taking good care of us. He gave us both Christian and Muslim friends who care about us and help us in every possible way. And we are grateful for your support and prayers. Please pray that we would be a good testimony to both Muslims and Christians and that we would be able to tell our Muslim friends about Christ. Please pray for my English students and for the kids at the orphanage and for the summer program we are planning for them. Pray for Egypt. Our Christian friends say that it is becoming more and more closed to the gospel and people are becoming more and more religious. Pay attention to that. For example, riding the metro, I learned several Muslim phrases because of the quote, Muslim evangelism, unquote, as we call it. First two cars in the metro train are for ladies, so there are girls who come in and start shouting, Bismillah, Ilamdu, Lila, 
Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbaru, Allahu Akbar, Allah is the greatest. And this they say three times. And everyone in the car repeats after them. Then they start selling Muslim brochures. Something really amazes me. They read Quran in public transportation. They turn on the sermons in public transportation. Sometimes you feel you've had enough. It's so annoying. Muslims talk about Islam being so logical, but Lena and I think it's more like a bowling game. If you say, Salamu Alaikum, peace to you, you score 10 points with Allah. If you say, Salamu Alaikum, wa ramatu ilahi, peace to you and the mercies of Allah, you score 20 points. Then if you say, Salamu Alaikum, wa ramatu ilahu, wa barakatu, peace to you and mercies of Allah and blessings, you score 30 points. I have membership in a public library where I found an interesting book about the lives of the prophets. It's hard to tell about these stories in a few words, but maybe I'll get the most interesting ones and email them to you. So stay in touch, and we will try our best to keep you updated, Lena and Oksana. So we need to pray for those two uh, young ladies trying to take the gospel into Egypt. That is an extremely dangerous thing to do, and it's quite a challenge. Well, now we're going to go back about 4,000 years in history, about 4,600 years to be exact, to Genesis chapter 10, and continue our study of the table of nations. Now, this is a real challenge to those of you who have just stepped in here, probably some of the most difficult passages in the Bible to teach through are Genesis 10 and 11, because this is not what you call a lot of glitz and glamour. But it is important because, number one, it's part of God's Word. It's been revealed to us. And two, because it sets a framework of history that is worked out in the rest of the Scripture and is also worked out in the rest of human history. Now, the framework for understanding the table of nations in Genesis 10 is really encapsulated and incorporated within the Noahic oracle that is given in Noah, I mean, in Genesis chapter 9 verses 25 through 27, where he curses Canaan and he has a blessing for Shem and a blessing for Japheth. Remember, Noah has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So we have Noah here, Shem, who is the father of the Shemites, which later becomes Semites, and it's really been restricted today to a term referring to Jews. That's where we get our term anti-Semitic. It goes back etymologically to the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, we have already studied the first five verses of chapter 10 where we looked at the descendants of Japheth. And now from, we'll look at verses 6 through 20, where we look at the descendants of Ham. Now, if we go back to the curse, I think this is so important to understand the cursing and blessing of the three sons that was uh, generated by Noah in order to understand this outworking. Japheth has a blessing that he will be enlarged. This enlargement blessing relates two ways. One, it has a physical dimension, and two, it has an intellectual dimension. 
Now, last time I mentioned the fact that it's physical as we traced where all of his descendants went as they went into Russia and Scandinavia and Western Europe and England. It is from the Western Europeans that the world is colonized. You don't see any other group after their initial... Uh, after their initial spreading out, as it were, in the early centuries when certain groups ended up in Africa and Asia and India, you don't see the kind of geographical dispersion that you do with Japheth. You get, you get the, uh, Australia. You have all the colonization that took place in the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries. In fact, in, in Asia, you have closed cultures. China and Japan are not reaching out. They're not going anywhere. They are closed off to surrounding uh, civilizations, surrounding cultures. But it is the Western Europeans that take, uh, take themselves around the world, and they are enlarged. And as they go, they take the gospel with them, and they take Western civilization. And Western civilization is a combination of two things. On the one hand, it's a combination of Christianity. This is what made Western civilization what it is after uh, the, the expansion of the early church. But before you have Christianity, you had uh, European paganism. Just put a P there for paganism. And under European paganism, the highest or the most highly developed thought there was Greek thought. And you had the development of Greek philosophy. In Rome, you had the development of the concept of law and many other facets were part of Roman society. These merge with Christianity. So you have the merger of the intellectual with a spiritual. Now, the spiritual comes from up here with Shem because it is through Shem that you have the Jews, you have the communication of the Old Testament, and, of course, our Savior is a Jew. And so Christianity comes about with a comes about from Shem, and this fulfills the principle of verse twenty of Genesis nine twenty six. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Shem, and may God enlarge Japheth, and may He dwell in the tents of Shem. So you have this this tent of Shem is virtually Christianity, our Judeo Christian heritage, and as Japheth takes his intellectual proclivities, which are part of the, the blessing and, and his enlargement, under the umbrella of Christianity, this then is the dynamic that changes the world. So that is an outworking of that. Now notice in the curse, you have a blessing for Japheth. You have a spiritual blessing for Shem, but there was no blessing for Ham and there was no cursing for Ham. Only one line that came out from Ham, from his son Canaan, that line is cursed. And so we see the outworking of that curse in this next section. Now there's two elements to this genealogy that comes out from, from Ham. In verses 6 to 14, we have the broad view of the Hamitic descendants and how they spread out over the earth. And then we narrow the focus in verse 15 to one of his sons, Canaan, the last one mentioned in verse 6. And it is Canaan, you remember, that is cursed, and he will be a servant of servants according to uh, Noah's curse in 925. 
So verses 15 through 20 will give us the uh, descendants of Canaan. Now, remember, you have to put yourself in the place of the Jew. You are with Moses. You've come out of Egypt where you have been enslaved for over 400 years to Egyptians. And Egypt, the word for Egypt in Hebrew is Mitzrayim. And if you notice that Mitzrayim is the second son of Ham. So when you read this and you're reading the sons of Ham were Cush, Mitzrayim, Put, and and uh, Canaan, you immediately think of the fact that you just came out of bondage for 400 years to the descendants of Mitzrayim. Further, you are getting ready to conquer the land of Canaan. You are going to invade and destroy by divine order all men, women, and children who are Canaanites and their descendants. And there, there would be those who would ask, well, why? What's the justification for this? This is what begins to lay the foundation for God's uh, decision to e- eradicate the Canaanites from the face of the earth. So verse 6 begins, The sons of Ham were Cush and Mitzrayim and Put and Canaan. We just began this last time. There are four sons of Ham. Uh, Cush is another term for Ethiopia. Probably also would include modern Sudan or part of modern Sudan, Ethiopia and Sudan. Uh, The term Cush comes up many, many times in Scripture. There are also... Uh, certain descendants of Cush that inhabited parts of Arabia. So it's that area that is, that is south of, of Egypt. So if we look at this map that I have on the overhead, we're talking about this area, what's called the Upper Nile area, and further south, plus across the Red Sea over into Arabia. And then there were other groups of the descendants of Cush, who migrated even further east, and they went through uh, the southern part of, of Iraq and Iran, and there there was a kingdom called the Kassites in about the year about 2000 B.C., and that is a, an etymologically related term to Cush. And another segment of the descendants of Cush pushed further east into India. And so this, uh, uh, it, it is from Cush that most of Africa descended as well as certain elements of India. Remember, you also had a group that we talked about last time as descendants of Japheth who also immigrated south to, uh, to Persia. And that is why you get, in, in, in with, with Japheth, you had two groups. One group went north and west to Europe. Another group went south and east. And they, they were called two different groups. And the group that went south and east were called Aryans. That's where that term originated. And, in fact, it is the etymological root of Iran. Iran and Aryan are both derived from the same root. And this is uh, these two groups form the uh, basis for when we speak about Indo-European languages. Indo from India, they settled in the northern part of India. Indo-European languages, all of these languages that we speak in Western Europe, and 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 still in some areas in northern Africa. I mean, excuse me, northern India, are all descendants from 
uh, an, an original language that was very similar. Sanskrit is the earliest of the Indo, one of the earliest of the Indo-European languages. So you have a merger that eventually takes place in India between the descendants of Cush, who are, who are Hamites, and these other descendants of of uh, of Japheth, and that will form the basic uh, ethnic group of, of India. So you have the first son of, is Cush, the second son, Mitzrayim, is Egypt, and there you have that I am plural. That's a Hebrew plural, and when you see that at, at the end of a name, for example, down in verse 13, you'll see Mitzrayim begot the Ladim, the Anamim, the Lehabim, the Naphtalim. These are people groups. Okay, for those of you who are fans of the Lord of the Rings, it's interesting that the uh, the writers of Rohan were called the Roharim. You know, Tolkien picked up a little Hebrew to uh, utilize in his uh, in the language that he invented there. The I am plural. So Mitzrayim, when you have this ending, this is referring not just to an individual, but to all of his descendants as a people group. So the sons of Ham are Cush, Mitzrayim, that's Egypt, Put, and Put is Libya. This is to the west of Egypt. Uh, Libya and Canaan refers, of course, to the descendants of, who inhabited the area of Syria, Phoenicia, and Palestine, the land of Canaan. It's interesting that uh, when we studied the descendants of Japheth, we could trace the names of the Japhethites. I turned it off. When we went through Genesis 10, and we lo- I mean the, the first five verses, and we looked at the descendants of Japheth, Japheth, we could trace the etymology of those names all the way through history. You can go and you could, we traced Gomer, and we saw how that root showed up in many different ways and many different forms all throughout Western Europe, and we traced that. But when you come to the descendants of Ham, none of these names show up in modern usage at all. They've all disappeared. You can't find a trace of them anywhere in modern history. You can find elements of them in ancient history, but you can't find the roots of these words showing up anywhere uh, today. Verse 6, the sons of Ham were Cush, Mitzrayim, Put, and Canaan. And then we are going to get a genealogy of Cush, the sons of Cush. Now remember, Cush moved south south into Africa and another group across to Arabia and then another group further, further east. So the sons of Cush are Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Ra'ama, and Sabtecha. Now of those... Five sons, we know very little. That's one thing that uh, spent a lot of time here tracing out the use of these words. Seba is a tribe in uh, Arabia. Uh, Ptolemy, in his geography, calls them Asabi. From there they spread into Africa. So remember, all of these groups are coming from up in the north, just off the top of the screen. They're coming from Ararat, and they're migrating south. So as they come south, one group would have headed uh, southwest and crossed over into Africa, and another group would have gone down into Arabia. So you have one group of Hamites that go into Arabia. 
Excuse me. What? I can't hear you. Look. See, that's not showing up on my computer. I don't have a clue what that. That's coming out of the um, coming out of the projector, and I have no clue what that. Oh, I know what that refers to. Where's Jim? Where's Jim? Nobody's here. There you are. Okay, we're going to have to work on the projector. It's overheating. We're going to have to, uh, before Sunday, we're going to have to vacuum it, clean it out, get it, get it ready to go again. Um, okay, you just have to remember what that map looked like. <laughs> get it firmly, firmly ensconced in your head or look at a map. In the, you probably have a good map in the back of your Bible that gives you a good overview of the, uh, of the Middle East. Okay, Seba was a tribe in in Arabia, and this is related to also to the term Sheba, and this was located in southwest Arabia. This is where the Queen of Sheba uh, derived. You have uh, Seba, Havilah, and Sabta and Raama are all located in southern Arabia. This whole group that descended from from Cush went into southern Arabia, and the sons of Raama are Sheba, this is the queen of Sheba, and Dedan, which is located in northern Arabia. So you have the sons of Cush are five, Seba, Havilah, Sapta, Raama, and Septaka. They all go into Arabia, these Hamites. Remember, Arabs are mostly Semites. So you're going to eventually have some sort of a merger between these two, uh, these two groups in that area of the world. Cush begot uh, Nimrod in verse 8, and verses 8 to 12 focus on uh, this one individual. Now, Nimrod's name is derived from the Hebrew Marad. Looks like this in Hebrew, M-A-R-A-D. And this means to rebel. And in the form in which Nimrod exists, where you put a noon at the beginning, it has the idea of, as a verb, it's a first person uh, plural, we rebel. And so Nimrod was probably one of the names that he picked up along the way, emphasizing his rebellion against God. Now, Nimrod becomes an interesting character over the span of history. He establishes a kingdom that encompasses modern Mesopotamia and Arabia, the whole area of modern Iraq and northern Iraq, Syria, all of this area in Iran becomes part of his kingdom, the territory that he dominates in these early years. Now remember, by his generation, he is the uh, great-grandson of Noah, and so he is living, if we compare him to uh, the descendants, for example, Salah in verse uh, chapter 11, verse 12, who, who lives 400 uh, 438 years, 
and Arphaxad, who lives about that same amount of time, they're living 400 years. So this is not something, do not think of him as a man who's living for 60 or 70 years. This is someone who probably lived to be about 400 years of age. So this encompasses a huge amount of time. His death occurs not long before Abraham. In fact, we'll uh, trace this out next week when I create a graph to show these time spans. But I would imagine that Nimrod either died just before Abraham was born or he may have overlapped the early years of Abram's life. So this is a time when he establishes his kingdom. He's described in verse 9 as a mighty hunter before the Lord, therefore it is said, and by that phrase it means this became proverbial in the ancient world. He is well known in the ancient world. Uh, According to, to Josephus, Nimrod led the people in a rebellion against God, and he was teaching people that they owed their happiness to themselves and not to God. He was the first one to institute a tyrannical form of government. And if you think about the ages of these people, that in these first three or four generations off the ark, they outlived their great-great-grandchildren. They were looked upon as gods. And last time I spoke about a group of uh, scholars and students over the years. Uh, they don't exist anymore. They, their name was Euhemerist, E-U-H-E-M-E-R-I-S-T-S. And uh, some of you may have read uh, Hislop's The Two Babylons. Anybody read that? Uh, he was the last of the Euhemerists. And these were men who, who went back and studied these ancient genealogical records because their, their theory, and I, there was a lot of truth to it, was that the descendants of Noah, Noah, uh, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, their immediate, each of their immediate descendants all became deified in the pantheons of their descendants. They looked upon these grandfathers and great-grandfathers of theirs who lived 400 years and who had prodigious powers and abilities because they still knew the old technology, the antediluvian technology that had uh, Noah and his sons had brought with them on the ark. And so their descendants would deify them. And so in many cases, Shem, Ham, and Japheth are identified with various gods and their wives are identified with various goddesses in the different pantheons of the ancient world. And Nimrod was identified as the Mesopotamian god Ninurta or Marduk. And he was the god of of fertility. And he was also, uh, in other uh, ways, he was also identified with uh, Gilgamesh or Lugal Banda, which was the uh, which was the the Noah or the the hero and uh, who told the story about Utnapishtim and the uh, and the flood in the Babylonian uh, epic. So he's in other king lists. He's identified with. Uh, Sargon of Agad, which later becomes the Akkadian Empire. He's the founder of that dynasty. He's also identified with Tukilti Ninurta. That name Ninurta is etymologically related to Nimrod in, in Assyria. So you have this uh, correlation 
taking place in the ancient world between these great these these great men and their accomplishments. So Nimrod is is the one who leads the people in a rebellion against God. And he establishes his kingdom, verse 10. The beginning of his kingdom was in uh, Babel, which is modern Babylon, which is located about 50 miles south-southwest of uh, Baghdad. Uh, Babel, uh, Erech, which is located even further south. Uh, Akkad, which is located... All of these cities are located along either the Tigris or Euphrates River between uh, modern Baghdad and the Persian Gulf. And he he founds the city of Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar, which is the term that is used to refer to this whole area of the Fertile Crescent, which is modern Iraq and uh, on from the northern parts all the way down to the Persian Gulf. So this becomes his kingdom. Now, out from his kingdom will come this massive rebellion in chapter 11 where man builds the the, uh, Tower of Babel to assert himself against God. And according to Josephus, Nimrod's uh, major problem with God was that God wiped out all of their all of their ancestors. He destroyed the world uh, before the flood, destroyed all of their ancestors. And so their motivation is to build this huge tower, which is called a ziggurat from a uh, Babylonian word, and that this ziggurat would be built so high that they could survive any flood that would come. So Nimrod's name uh, becomes associated with the chief gods in the Babylonian pantheon. The city of Babel, of course, becomes the future capital of the Babylonian empire, and the city of Babel and Babylon becomes the counterpoint throughout the Scripture to what God is doing in Jerusalem. And it is the city of Babylon in Revelation 17 and 18 that becomes the headquarters for the Antichrist. Now, there are many dispensationalists and prophecy teachers who have historically taken uh, Babylon to refer to a more spiritualized form, that in the latter days, Babylon's already been destroyed, in the latter days, this the spirit of Babylon will be resurrected in the ten-nation confederacy that's known as the revived Roman Empire. However, over the last 20 years, because Saddam Hussein spent millions of dollars to rebuild Babylon, a tremendous amount of research has gone on, and there are now many conservative dispensationalists who think that Babylon will be rebuilt because uh, the prophecy in Isaiah 13 that Babylon would become a waste place, a desert, where there would be uh, none to, no one would dwell except the wild animals, has never been fulfilled. Charlie Dyer, who was a classmate of mine at Dallas Seminary, wrote his uh, doctoral dissertation at Dallas on Babylon. He's been over there several times. He's written a book called The Rise of Babylon, which is an excellent study on this whole issue. And Dyer's conclusion is that 
that this is going to be a literal uh, resurrection of Babylon. So there is a there is a certain amount of disagreement on this, and uh, we will get to that, and I'll have the time to to probably study all of that out by the time we get there in our study of Revelation. But the point is that I'm making now is that this begins in Genesis chapter 10 with this point and counterpoint between Jerusalem as the city of God. It is known as Salem at the beginning, and the ruler of Salem was a king priest by the name of Melchizedek. Now, the Bible doesn't identify who Melchizedek is, but Josephus and tells us in other ancient Jewish uh, writings identify Melchizedek as Shem, the son of Noah, because Shem was still alive. Shem does not die until Noah, I mean, until Abraham is about 125, 126, 127 years of age. So Melchizedek lives for many, I mean, Shem lives for many years, and there's possibility that Shem is the one who worships God according to, worships Yahweh according to Genesis uh, 9.26, that he is Melchizedek. And this is a position that many uh, hold. You can't state it dogmatically because the Bible doesn't make that identification, but I think there's a good chance that that's true. And so you have this con- contrast between uh, Babylon as the city of man, Babylon which pictures all of man's efforts against God to find peace and stability and happiness apart from God. You find Babylon on the one hand and Jerusalem on the other, and this conflict between the city of God and the city of man comes to its final uh, fruition at the end of the tribulation. Uh, Eric was uh, known to the Assyrians and Babylonians as the city of Uruk, And it was a city located on the Euphrates about 50 miles northwest of Ur, which was Abram's hometown. So it's towards the uh, south uh, east of Baghdad. In Akkad, uh, it was also a major city in the north in Assyria. Sargon I, who was a vizier of a man named Kish. Notice the similarity to Cush. He was, Sargon I founded the dynasty at Agad and was some attributed to him the establishment of this capital. So perhaps that was another name which was uh, picked up by uh, Nimrod. Some legends identify Sargon I with Nimrod. Uh, Talna is uh, unknown. There's references to Kalna in Amos 6.2 and Isaiah 10.9 as a city in northern Mesopotamia, but uh, there's no certainty as to its exact location. And then in verse 11, we're told that from that land, that is from the southern Mesopotamian area, he goes north to Assyria, and he built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, and Kala. Now, Nineveh, of course, becomes known later on in Jonah. Jonah is sent to Nineveh because it was the capital of the Assyrian Empire in his day. But until then, it's not mentioned again in the Scripture, but Nineveh is the capital. The Assyrian Empire represents the other major enemy that Israel dealt with in their future. They they would be defeated by the Assyrians who would wipe out the northern kingdom of Israel and the Babylonians who would wipe out the southern kingdom 
of Israel. So there's foreshadowing here as early as 1440 BC, or 1400 BC, you're seeing this foreshadowing of the future conflicts and the future enemies of Israel. Rehoboth Ir, that's a Hebrew word meaning city squares or wide spaces of the city. As uh, somewhere in Assyria, its location is, is not known, and the city of Akala is not known, but based on uh, Genesis 10:12, it was a formidable city. It was referred to as being in existence during the time of Hammurabi, and it was rebuilt by Shalmaneser I. But by the time you get into the first millennium B.C., it disappears from history. Uh, we're told that uh, that he built, a, a, he went to Assyria and he built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kala, which is a principal city there, but we do not know where Rezin was located. Then in verse 13, we shift from the descendants of Cush to the descendants of Mitzrayim. And there we're told that Mitzrayim begot the Ludim, the Anamim, the Lehavim, and the Naphtuhim. And verse 14, the Pathrasim and Caslahim, from which came the, the Philistines and the Kaphtarim. So Mitzrayim is Egypt, and the terms Ladim, Anamim, Lehavim, and Naphtuhim refer to different tribes of the Egyptians. However, it's interesting to note that the modern Libyans trace themselves back to Lehavim as a son of Mitzrayim. So the Lehavim would have moved to the west and eventually merged with Put, and that would develop the, the area, the, the people who live in the area of Libya. The other groups, the Naphtuhim, were thought to inhabit the Egyptian area, in Egypt, the area of the Delta, in the uh, area of Lower Egypt. Remember, Lower Egypt is in the north and Upper Egypt is in the south. Upper and Lower have to do with elevation. So the, the um, Naphtuhim were in Lower Egypt and the Pathrasim were in Upper Egypt. And then the interesting verse, I think, for future references, is verse 14. That you have the Caslahim. And then there's a parenthesis. And I think that the best place to close the parenthesis is at the end of the verse. From the Caslahim came the Philistines and the Kaphtarim. You don't have two different groups, Caslahim and Kaphtarim. You have one group, and that group breaks off into the Philistines and Kaphtarim. But what this tells us is the Philistines, who are often identified as Greeks, part of the Greek sea peoples, weren't Greek. They were uh, they, they left uh, from Egypt, they migrated up to Crete, and they could have been the early, uh, what was known as the early Minoan civilization. They could have derived from this, these descendants. In, in uh, uh, archaeology, they discovered that the language of the Minoans was what is called Linear A. And Linear A was not a Greek language, even though they're up, up in Crete. Linear B which came after it was Greek, but Linear A was not Greek. So it's very possible that that language came uh, from the uh, descendants, from, from the original Philistines who went to Kaftor. Kaftor is mentioned. The Philistines are mentioned with Kaftor in Jeremiah 47.4 and Deuteronomy 2.23 and Amos 9.9.7. 
Three, three references identify the Philistines and the Kaftor, Kaftorim, Amos 9-7, Jeremiah 47-4, and Deuteronomy 2-23. So the Philistines are not Semitic. They're not Japhetic. They are Ham, descendants of Ham. Now what we see here is that in this grouping of people that there's no real blessing and there's no cursing, but they are the progenitors of the enemies of Israel. And then in verse 15, we get the descendants of Canaan. Now, all of these are located in the general area of what we know as Palestine or modern Lebanon, all in that area, and they are the enemies of Israel in the land that God has promised to them. 15, we're told that Canaan begot Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth. Now, Sidon becomes the uh, name of the city that he founds and establishes in ancient Phoenicia. Sidon was entire, were two major cities along the Mediterranean coast, and they uh, became very influential in later years in terms of trade. And when the Greeks, when the Greek sea peoples invaded, they further established their place there. So the Greek sea peoples were, were a real mix of a lot of different uh, groups. They were primarily Greek, but there were Philistines and there were others. There were Hittites and other groups that made up part of that invasion. And they are the group that moved into the area along the uh, Mediterranean coast and established the city, uh, or further developed the city of Sidon. The other one mentioned here is Heth, and he is the father of the Hittites. He's the, the sons of Heth are mentioned in Genesis 23 in association with Abraham's purchase of a burial plot for, for uh, Sarah and for the family. Uh, he is, uh, his descendants also moved to the north into Turkey where they established the Hittite uh, empire. Then in verse 16 we have a grouping of different tribes, verses 16, 17, and 18, are different tribes who are descendants of Canaan who have their residence in the promised land. Uh, we have the Jebusites who, are, who live in the area of Jerusalem, and eventually David is going to conquer Jer- Jerusalem and defeat the Jebusites. The Amorites live in the northern part of the land, but uh, Amorites were also... Uh, or a large segment of Amorites also immigrated into Babylon uh, around 2000 B.C. They were responsible for the defeat of the third dynasty of Ur, which is where Abram came from. We'll get into a study of the third dynasty of Ur as we study Abram's life. And they established an Amorite dynasty at Babylon. The most powerful Amorite king in the ancient world was Hammurabi. At the time of the Israelite invasion of Canaan in 1400 B.C., Og of Bashan and Sion of Heshbon were Amorite kings. Also, the men of Ai are called Amorites. So in many passages, Amorite becomes a synonym for the Canaanites. You have the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites. Very little is known uh, about these groups other than they are uh, Canaanite tribes that inhabited different portions of the land. The Archites uh, inhabited a town up on the north on the Phoenician border called Arkat, and it was now in um, in the 
uh, country of Lebanon. But all of these other groups are just different tribal groups inhabiting the land. And at the end of verse 18, we read, Afterwards, the family of the Canaanites were dispersed, that is, scattered throughout this area. And the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon. This is in the north, up in modern Lebanon. As you go towards Gerar, this is further to the to the east. As far as Gaza in the south, this is the modern Gaza Strip, down the southwest of Israel. Then as you go towards Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, as far as Lacia, these are the cities of the plains over by the Dead Sea. So this gives the set of verses uh, 14 or 15 through 20, give us the sons of Ham who are divided according to their families or clans actually. Their, their mishpatim is better understood as clans according to their languages in their lands and in their nations. So this uh, gives us an understanding of the descendants of Ham. One of the interesting things that uh, Arthur Custance points out in his study of Noah's three sons, which is the book that I have here, it's about a 360-page study of the descendants of, of Ham, I mean of the descendants of Noah, he points out that the descendants of Ham gave us the building blocks for civilization and technology. And he has some fascinating studies in here. For example, he talks about the fact that that very few uh, rudimentary inventions came from either the Japhethites or the Shemites. And it was the Hamitic civilizations that gave us fundamental uh, inventions. And he gives a list and a In describing the list, he says, for the sake of brevity, he says, I have not discriminated between principles of operation. So in many cases, they develop certain principles of operation versus actual products or techniques. So they they, uh, might have developed certain techniques or operation, but they never really exploited it. And the classic example that I usually give is, is the um, is gunpowder. The Chinese invented gunpowder, but they never really did anything with it. It wasn't until you have the scientific, philosophical, uh, intellectual framework of the of the Western Europeans, the Japhethites, who take this rudimentary discovery and do something with it. And this happens in a number of areas. For example, in architecture, one of the most difficult things to build is a dome. And there was a book that came out this last year on Brunelleschi's Dome, which is a famous dome that was built during the time of the Renaissance in Europe, except Brunelleschi didn't invent the, the concept of how to build a dome. The Eskimos did. Just rudimentary, primitive people uh, learned how to take ice blocks and where one person could build an igloo, which has a domed roof. And the way they constructed it was not to build one layer at a time, but to build it in a spiral so that each ice block that you fit in would have to fit and nestle in and lean up and gain its support from the uh, block that you had just put in until you got to the top and then you could place the center uh, piece into the top. So the construction of a dome was originally invented by uh, Eskimos. Eskimos also invented the thimble. And many other things, basic rudimentary 
uh, inventions. So I'm just going to read. He's got two pages of things, or four pages actually, of basic inventions attributed to Hamitic people. For example, in fabrics and weaving, linen, cotton, silk, wool, felt, lace, the parchment, all uh, invented by very rudimentary, what we'd consider primitive people. Uh, writing, inks, chalks, pencils and crayons, block printing, uh, movable type, all kinds of paper, textbooks, encyclopedias, libraries and cataloging systems, all were developed by a Hamitic people in terms of engineering, the block and tackle, uh, gears, pulleys, catapults, gimbal suspension, suspension bridges, can't, the cantilever principle, uh, chain drives, uh, domes and arches, lock gates and lifts, uh, lathes, all were invented originally by Hamitic people. He talks about, uh, in mathematics, geometry, trigonometry, algebra, all invented by uh, Hamitic people. I believe the compass was also invented by Hamitic people, skis, toboggan, snowshoes, uh, all kinds of watercraft were invented by Hamitic people. So they took very raw materials and were able to do uh, pretty incredible things in terms of engineering with them. We still don't know how they made the pyramids with the tools that they had available to them at the time. But this was the kind of skill, I think, that came off of the ark, that Noah and his sons brought that uh, certain technology with them that was passed down and allowed some of the early generations to create some of the early wonders of the ancient world that later generations were incapable of developing. So all of this flows out of those that oracle of Noah at the end of at the end of chapter nine. And it foreshadows the fact that eventually the spiritual solution to man's problems would come through the descendants of Shem, specifically the Jews and individually in the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet all of the battles, all the problems that we see today between the Jews and the Arabs, and we'll see uh, more detail on that coming up as we get into the life of Abraham, but all of this has its roots in Genesis. You can't understand what's going on today unless you have some rudimentary understanding of the table of nations, Genesis 10 and 11, and how that works itself out in uh, biblical history. Next time we'll come back and we'll look at the descendants, or we'll go, we'll go into the Tower of Babel before we go into the descendants of Shem. As I've looked at this to try to consolidate this uh, just a little bit, the rest of chapter 10 gives us the descendants of Shem. And then we get a tighter look at Shem, when, Shem's descendants, in the latter part of chapter 11. I'll just bring those together in one study. And then we'll look at the Tower of Babel. So we have about two or three more weeks here, and then we will begin the life of Abraham with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to gain a greater appreciation of the scope of, of revelation and the scope of, of human history that is encapsulated here in a very abbreviated form. 
and gives us great understanding and confidence in your control of human history that despite the threats that are out there on the horizon, despite the instability, the uncertainty that exists in our world, we know that this kind of thing has existed many, many times in human history. And yet you control human history. You are working out your plans and purposes in order to bring everything to its ultimate conclusion. And, Father, we can, have, we can relax and have confidence in you. We pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen.